this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You, you do. If you didn't have anything better to do. <laughs> I can never get that right. I know. Well, it's not really, you know, it's just something we said. Well, it's our catchphrase. Yes. So, should we get right into it? Well, I'm trying to think if we have anything we have to talk about. No. I can't think of anything. Okay. So, so you're doing the topic. Yes. This week. November 18th, 1978. I remember it well. Yes. I was babysitting. And it was right after the news, the evening news. What day of the week was that? It was a Saturday. That's why I was babysitting. And back in 1978, people would actually hire a 13-year-old to take care of their children. Do you remember who you were babysitting for? I don't remember the children's names. I remember the girl. Her name was Katie something, the oldest. She was 10, and she did not like having a babysitter. Where did they live? They lived, it was in, I don't want to say because I don't. No, I'm just trying to remember who they were. I don't think you ever had them as. Okay. I was 17 and a senior in high school. Yes. In 1978. Yes. I can't remember their last name, but there was a girl who was 10 and I think two younger boys, and they were all finally in bed because she did not want to go to bed. She didn't want to do anything, I told her, because she was. Felt, I think she felt she was too old to have a babysitter. When a murderer came into the house, no, the, when the phone rang and somebody said, I'm upstairs <sighs> with a knife. No, no, it wasn't anything more. like that. The news had just ended and I was waiting for Saturday Night Live to start. I was all like, I was hoping they wouldn't get home till at least midnight so I could watch some of it. And there was a news break and it said that a congressman had been shot in Guyana, South America. I don't know if there was a lot of stuff going on. It was pre-Iran hostage yes. thing, but you know, it was a type of thing like I was. Uh, it was. It wasn't a. It was a kind of a big deal, but it wasn't a huge deal. It was. It was bizarre, but it wasn't. I remember it being a a big deal because it was so strange. He yeah. had gone down to Guyana. An fact-finding mission. Because so many of his constituents were part of. Yes, but I don't even know how much of that we knew at this time. I. We kind I knew, of knew that he had gone down, but I think his being shot and, after the, and his name was Leo Ryan. Yes, Leo Ryan, and I do talk about him later, so don't. Spoil oh, I don't want us to do any spoilers. But after the fact, because our think, readers are our listeners are already saying, "Ooh, I wonder what at, we're talking." But about. after the fact, I think more details came up right. about why he was down there. But at the time, it was like this congressman was down in Guyana and got shot on an airstrip and died, and some other people got shot with him. And it was startling. And then on Monday, more things came out, and it wasn't just the congressman being shot, it was the Jonestown massacre. And I just want to say on that Monday, I used to watch the Today Show before I went to school, you know how on the Today Show they would have the news every hour or every half hour, I guess. And every news update, there'd be more bodies. Yes, I think it's because at first they started with like 400-something. Right. And then they, the Guyanan military, I think, was who went into the into the compound. Compound, that sounds like a wake-up. But it went into their village. I don't know what you would call it. It was a community of Jonestown that first went in to, to find out what happened. And I'm, I was trying to remember... They immediately connected the things. Yes, and yes, they did because you'll see when I go okay. through it, you'll see that they did. They knew that it that that something bad had happened there, and it was because of there were people from Jonestown in Georgetown, which is the capital of Guyana, and the 
basketball team from Jonestown, which had three of Jim Jones' sons on it. His son, Steve, who was his biological son, and his two adopted sons, Tim and Jim Jr. They were in Georgetown, and they knew that something bad was happening. And and I'll explain how this all came about. It's actually a lot more complicated than people think. One of the theories I've read, which I'll get into now because I think it's silly, and maybe I should get into it at the end. I don't well, know. maybe you should say, because I'm sure there's some people who don't know what it is. Yes. And I just want to say, before you get into it, the reason I say that is because when I was a sports editor several years ago, I got really tired of hearing the cliche, drinking the Kool-Aid. Yes. And we may talk about a little more about that. But I just want to say, I got so tired of hearing it, I told the guys to look up, to Google, drinking the Kool-Aid, yes. to see where it originated. And this was maybe about 10 years ago, and mm-hmm. these guys were all in their late 20s, early 30s, and they had never heard of it. And it's funny that it didn't come into the vernacular until, like, the early 2000s was the first all, time I heard it. All it takes is one football coach. Oh, a football or coach. Or something like Drink that. Drink the Flavor-Aid is what it should have well, said. Yes, it, it should Flavor-Aid. And, and the thing is about that cliche, it gets thrown around, and the fact that almost a thousand people died is... And people and who throw it around. And a third of them were children. Almost 300 of them were but, So in any children. case, you were going to say what it was. What Jonestown. Yes. So the Jonestown Massacre of our generation, of course, is one of those big things. It's just like when we were talking about John Bonet. You assume people know, and they don't. Well, I assumed that those sports writers knew. Well, you know, in a, in a related note, even though this is kind of a, a tangent, I said something about going postal. Oh, my God, and people didn't know this what that This guy was. did not know what I meant, and he was probably about 10 years younger than me. I said it was back, what was it, in the 90s? No, it was the 80s. 80s. The oh. first one, the first postman, but they were, it was that one at the McDonald's in California, and I was working in, at the Biddeford newspaper, so this would have been 1983 or 84. So, yeah. So he didn't know what, what that referred to, and which we're referring to is in a short period of time, I can't remember, there were several postal, several employees. postal employees who were mass shooters. Went on shooting sprees. So I know. guess it's a stressful job. I guess. But, but anyway, anyways. you were going to tell our okay, listeners so, what the Jonestown Massacre So the Jonestown Massacre. Is. Jonestown was a community in Guyana, which is a, a country in South America between Venezuela and I you're asking the wrong no, but it's on kind of on the eastern eastern upper part of South America. I don't know how you know. I I'm trying to picture South America. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I know is alive when the Chilean. Well, that's in Peru. That's over on the other okay. side. Okay. We can talk about that sometime, too. Oh, that one was good. The one. cannibalism. Yeah. That's not, that wasn't really a crime or a mystery. Though. No. But they have a crime and stuff. So, anyways, let's go from the beginning. So, Jonestown was a settlement in Guyana. I'll explain more about it in detail later. Basically, this, I guess you could call it a religious group. Cult. It's cult, yes. Set up a house down there. To, they wanted to get away from the from the United States. The man. The man, maybe. And their leader was Jim Jones, a minister. He named Jonestown after himself, of course. 
And so let me talk about him because he is the reason that all these people died. And a lot of people call it a mass suicide. It was a mass murder suicide. It was a murder. It wasn't, it wasn't, some people did commit suicide. I think many, at least half of the people were murdered or, or they were, they were forced or, or compelled to do it. Also, when somebody's controlling you and basically has you, you you don't necessarily have control over your decision-making. No. They were isolated. No. Yes, and we'll get into that. Okay. So I'll let you tell the story. So Jim Jones, let me talk about him. He was born on May 13, 1931 in Crete, Indiana, which is an unincorporated township. A very close to the Ohio border. They say it's a few miles east of Lynn, Indiana, which is also a tiny town. Oh, these are great geographic references. Like uh, a thousand people in 2010 were in Lynn, Indiana. I think it's a little northeast maybe of Indianapolis, about probably a hundred miles. I'm trying to picture Indiana. You're shitty with geography. Uh, People who are listening just freaking Google Indiana. Yeah. Look at your phone. It doesn't maps. really matter. All that matters is it's a, like a very small town, rural area. And in the 30s, it was and probably... In the 30s, even. his father was a disabled World War One veteran who was disabled by mustard gas and didn't work. He lived on disability. So his father was James Thurman Jones. His mother was Lynetta Putnam Jones. She worked at a variety of jobs. She had to work because her husband did, was unable to. Well, that mustard gas was some bad shit. His father had no interest in him, apparently, or little interest mm-hmm. in him, so he was left to his own devices. Uh-oh. But in 1934, they moved to Lynn, which apparently was a move up, but they lived in like a shack with no plumbing, which a lot of people I did think in a lot the 30s. Of, and it was the Depression. Yeah, it was the Depression. His mother was agnostic at the time. Uh-oh. His father, like I said, didn't give her crap about him so who knows but our neighbor used to bring him to church a lot as he grew he went to church a lot when he was a little kid but as he grew into his preteens, he he was very interested in religion obviously in that area it was mostly christian churches or if not all but he went to a lot of different churches and he would like kind of throw himself into the religion then just get disinterested and leave so this is pre-teens early teens you know like evangelical type protestant he went to a lot of like pentecostal and stuff like that he was very into it even as a teen i read some comments from people that grew up with him that said he was really weird he did not like sports Oh, that is weird. And he thought drinking and dancing were sinful, so he didn't do that. But he was a very good student, and he started preaching to his friends even when he was like 10 years old. He sounds like a lot of fun. So I can see why maybe he was a little bit ostracized. I wonder how many birthday parties he didn't get invited I know. But eventually his parents split up, and he and his mother moved to Richmond, Indiana, which I'm sure you know where that is, Mo. I don't really know where that is. He worked as a hospital orderly when he uh, was in high school, and he met an older nursing student named Marceline Baldwin. He graduated early from high school because he was smart, and he enrolled in Indiana University in 1948, and he and Marceline married in 1949, so he was about 18 when he got married. That's where Larry Bird went to college, I think. I don't know where he went to college. I just know that the town he's from. French Lit. French Lit. Because he used to say he was the hick from French Lit. I just think the name is just really dirty sounding. (laughs) French Lit. Okay. In the early 50s, he started attending Communist Party meetings. Uh Uh-oh. 
and he really dug the well he was growing up read a lot and he read a lot of apparently like biographies and memoirs and he he, he read a lot about different leaders from Stalin, Adolf Hitler, supposedly, and, and I'm not really sure about my sources. So it sounds um, like he was Gandhi, like, mm. Mao Zedong. So he read all sorts of things. Sounds like he was trying to find himself. He was find trying a- to find himself, and he was gleaned what he could. Like he he learned a lot about different leaders just to see. I don't know. He was he was interested. Yeah, in and I don't mean that. In a sarcastic way. I mean, it sounds like he was rootless and was trying to find a way to belong. Well, he was. He he was by himself a lot. He probably had trouble. He had no siblings? No siblings. He probably had trouble. At least I think no siblings. That's a good question. They didn't mention Mm -hmm. any. Um, and all the things I read. He um, obviously had trouble connecting with other kids. That's one of the reasons as he became an adult, he was very empathetic to minorities, especially black people, because he knew what it was like to be. He felt like he had been an outsider his whole life. So he kind of... He related to people on the fringes. He did. So he started to go to these communist meetings, and he also decided in 1952 he was going to enter the ministry. He liked the idea of socialism and communism. He also was religious and felt that he could meld the two somehow. So he became a student pastor at a Methodist church, which was in a poor white neighborhood in Indianapolis. He was a strong public speaker and was gaining a reputation as a faith healer and an evangelist. He wanted to have integrated services, but that didn't fly with the church he was in. Wow. So in 1955 in Indianapolis, he launched the Wings of Deliverance Church. It soon became known as the People's Temple. And it was mostly, his congregation was mostly black at first. He did start to attract white and black people. And part of the way he started to attract them was through faith healing uh, he figured that that could that that kind of whipped up publicity, I think, and got more people to join and maybe got more people to donate. He, as you'll see later, he didn't obviously faith. Uh, I shouldn't say obviously. I know there might be some people, including our listeners, who believe in it, but a lot of it was bullshit. And he always felt like the ends justified the means. So if that helped get his message out, then he was going to do it. In 1960, his church joined the Disciples of Christ, a mainstream, like, Protestant church. Okay, I was going to say it was a cult. No, there is one called Church of Christ that is a Maybe cult. Maybe that's the one I... But the Disciples of Christ is just like a Congregationalist order church. I'm not sure how you would call it. Their headquarters are in Indianapolis. And he was ordained in 1964 into that church. And there was this religious leader at the time. He started, like, in the 20s called Father Divine. His real name is thought to be George Baker. He was African-American. He founded the International Peace Mission Movement. It started in the 1920s. I also have heard it called the Universal the Universal Peace Mission Movement. In the late 1950s, Jones visited Father Divine at his home, which was near Philadelphia. He lived in this mansion that somebody had given mm. him. It's clear that Jones was influenced by Father Divine, who was a charismatic preacher with a multiracial congregation who claimed to be God and believed in a socialistic type of society, promoting economic empowerment through redistribution of wealth, pooling resources, working for little or no money, stuff like that. These adopted beliefs became more apparent later on, especially when they moved to Guyana. You know, they can work their asses off. Funny how he wasn't out there working. But I have a fun fact about Father Divine. 
Johnny Mercer credited Father Divine for inspiring that song, Accentuate the Positive, Eliminate the Negative. That was a Father Divine had a sermon. Johnny Mercer went to a sermon where Father Divine said that you have to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. And he wrote a song. He did. He said, that sounds like a good line for a song. Mm. Anyway, so in the... That is a fun fact. Yes, it was. I thought it was. In the 1950s and early 60s, Jones and his wife Marceline adopted a girl, Agnes, who was part Native American. That's my middle name. Yes, and three Korean children, Stephanie, Lou, and Suzanne. So they were kind of like Angelina. In 1956. Angelina Jolie. They were like Ashley, and he called his family the Rainbow Family. Oh, wow. Uh, He was pre-Angelina. Maybe she'll start her own cult. The reason for these, he was critical of the United States position in the Korean War, so he encouraged everybody to adopt Korean War orphans. That's why he adopted these three children. Stephanie died at age five in a car accident. In 1959, his wife had Stephen, who was their only biological child, Stephen Gandhi Jones. Mm. And then in 1961, they adopted a black child named James Warren Jones Jr. And they were the first white couple in Indianapolis to adopt an African-American child. Wow. But being before his time was difficult, and he and his family suffered intimidation and death threats in Indiana. It's always difficult to be before your time. It said that when she was walking down the street with her kids, people would spit on them. That doesn't surprise me. He had done a lot of work integrating the community, but he suffered a backlash. While he lived in Indianapolis, he was the, the head of the... Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. Wow. So he had a hand in desegregating movie theaters, uh, restaurants, the telephone company, hospitals, the city police department. So he started out with great intentions. He did. And if it hadn't been for the whole a thousand people dying. Yeah, but I'm sure, I think all along he had he had some issues, but they just got worse as time went on. He had some good and progressive ideas, but he also was a kind of a sociopath and fucked up. He was very paranoid from the beginning. I think the hostility got to him in Indianapolis. It wasn't a city that was ready for any kind of progressive movement. And it was the early 60s. He was worried about nuclear war. And he read in uh, Esquire magazine, they had a they had an article, The Nine Safest Places to Be mm. in Case of a Nuclear War. And one of them was in Brazil, Belo Horizonte, Brazil. He moved down to Brazil in um, 1961 for a couple of years with his wife. Because it was safe. Well, he was scouting out a, a place, yeah, to move his flock. Well, he did do missionary work and stuff down there, but he had trouble with the language barrier. I guess he didn't know. Didn't know how to learn Portuguese, I don't know. So, in 64, he returned to Indiana. He told his congregation there was going to be a nuclear war on July 15, 1967. He told them that then, or he said that's when it was going to be? That was when it's going to be. Mm. This was in 1964, so he told oh, them right. that it was going to be. And he, the other, another place that was on that list was Ukiah, California. Because mm-hmm. it was in some kind of valley or something, I guess it would be... On the safe list. On the safe list. So the nuclear wave would just, like, pass over it. Apparently. Uh, so he said so they had to Now, move. did it say why he picked July 15th, 1967? 
he he probably pulled it out of his butt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or his freaking crazy mind. Mm-hmm. He obviously had issues. I mean, this isn't. I'm just giving you kind of the facts. You are, yes. But he, his whole life, he was he was had problems, right. and he was also repressed homosexual, I believe. Not that that mm-hmm. would make Way you, that, that, not that, that would make you be a, a sociopath, but I think any repression of a major part of who you are might cause you psychological. So, anyways, he told his congregation about this nuclear war that was going to, or nuclear attack, or whatever, and he said they had to move to Ukiah. So during the following year, they everyone a bunch of people now that's moved in, with them. Now that's in northern Northern California, north of San Francisco. I can't really tell from the map, but it looks like it's like halfway between San Francisco and the a northern border of California. With we may have driven through it. We probably did that time we drove from Portland, Oregon. Yes. To San so Jones had always done hate faith healing, like I said. So and he did it because it gained attention. And people were drawn to it. And I also think, although I haven't read this, but and I, this actually just occurred to me as I was saying this, that the same type of people who are going to believe in faith healing and be attracted to faith healing are the same kind of, they're obviously easy to manipulate. Gullible. Gullible. Honestly, they want to believe stuff. Yeah. They want to believe. They do. They do. So that might be, and I don't know if he actually thought it out that way but he was pretty freaking smart and he was just like a lot of people like himself he he understood other people's psychology and how to manipulate even if he was a narcissist he could still see other people's weaknesses and how he could use them to his own advantage so he continued the faith healing and even some of his inner circle and the you know the people that he had most of them were women that he had around him that were helping him run things knew that it was fake he had convinced them that okay yes we're doing this because it's going to lead to better things so it'll help and i think he also believed that the best way to preach his brand of socialism was through the church a lot of times he used the gospel to promote the socialism this mm. you know socialism he'd pick you know, passages and stuff that would kind of promote that socialistic thing. By the early 70s, he began to preach against Christianity. Hmm, that's a term. Saying the Bible was a tool to oppress non-whites and women. By this time, he had also opened a branch in San Francisco. It was a ripe time, you know, all these aging hippies and stuff. Well, not aging back then. Well, it was the early 70s. Yeah, I guess They were right. still hippies. They were, they were progressive. It said... Most of his followers before had been poor. A lot of them black. Most people were in the lower stratum of the society financially. Now he was attracting middle-class progressives, anti-war, pro-civil rights. Um, part of the socialism thing was to give your stuff to the church. Mm, yes. Pool all your resources. Lots of churches want you to give their so stuff to So they gave him stuff to him, and some of it went to, back into the church, but apparently a lot of it did not, although... I have to say, he didn't look like he was living a lavish lifestyle. He probably was didn't comfortable, it, but he wasn't, like, flaunting it. Didn't his church have a lot of social programs? They did. They did people. have lots of social programs uh, from the beginning. In Indianapolis, they had, like, a restaurant. They gave free meals to people, and they had help for the elderly, and he did that type of work in San Francisco as well. His congregation grew fast once he branched to San Francisco, too, and he bought an old synagogue building in 1971 and had a big sign, the People's Temple. I'm sure you've seen it. Yeah. Politicians curried favor 
because if he told his congregants to say go to a rally hundreds of people would show up at this rally and there were people all demographics young old black white and if he asked them to distribute a bunch of flyers they would do that you know if they had to show up and protest something or it was like a built-in like mob that any politician would die to have that kind of following following show up and it made them look good so they they liked him and outwardly he was doing a lot of good right but even at that time he was doing some sketchy stuff behind the scenes he cultivated relationships with media organizations becoming chummy with publishers and editors Mm. and it kept them from investigating his secret they love people who become chummy with them well a lot of reporters like on the san francisco chronicle and stuff were like this church is a lot of because they would hear hints of stuff let's do a story on this church it's kind of secretive and the editors and publishers would be like no no there's nothing there you know don't don't that's my friend jim and he had this elvis thing going on with this he had had black hair hair and the glasses yeah sunglasses so he helped george moscone get elected in 1975 so he was appointed chairman george moscone was the mayor of san francisco sorry mayor of san francisco so he was appointed chairman of the san francisco housing authority commission also probably because he did have he cared about the poor and stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> so, he met all the political figures of the day walter mondale this is jones who met them moscone right. met them too i'm sure walter mondale rosalind carter jerry brown who called him a combination of martin luther king jr angela davis Albert Einstein and Chairman Mao. Wow. I know. That's what I call Jerry. Whoa, Jerry, come on. So he really had people. He had people bamboozled. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it was a matter of he wasn't all one thing or all the other thing. I don't think he was doing it all. I think the negatives, maybe some of the negatives about him and his personality were obvious to people who had these superficial relationships with him. They saw what he was doing in the community they didn't know and but the thing is he was doing some things in the community that were i mean he was doing good things it wasn't a it wasn't a show you know what i mean i'm not saying that he no and a lot of people who have who have come to control societies you know did good things for people yes. like mussolini he made the trains run on time yeah, you know? I know it's true. Well, I, mean, I think some people actually—that's how you get people. And I'm not saying that he was trying to manipulate people, but that's how you get people to come under your wing. You show them that you can do things yes. for them and help them when nobody else is helping them. That's true too. Yeah, this is a quote from him that I'm sure some people have heard before. What you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. If you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you that don't have a father. If you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. Well, and people were cheering at that. And when he was like railing against the Bible and Christianity, his congregation was like whipped up and they were cheering. So he started out with a lot of these people do too. When you think about like, you know, cult leaders, they start out getting people in by by talking about God, but then they start to transfer the people's beliefs from God to them. Forget about that God guy. I'm, I'm, I'm God. the real thing. I said the love fest didn't last. In 1977, Jim Jones learned the New West magazine 
was going to publish an expose about physical, emotional, and sexual abuse behind the scenes at the People's Temple. Mm. It had been written by San Francisco Chronicle reporter Marshall Kilduff, who had been talking to former Temple members. The editors at the Chronicle did not want to publish the story, so he brought the story to New West. Yeah. And they wanted it's to publish it. This is 1977, but back in 1974, Jones had leased land in Guyana with the plan to eventually move there. He envisioned a self-sustaining agricultural community, which would be called the People's Temple Agricultural Project. And he sent a bunch of young men, about three or four dozen, to clear some of the forest and start building the cottages. One of the advanced team was his son, Steve, who said it was the best time of his life. I saw an interview with Steve as... It, it was probably about 10 years ago. Yeah, I think I saw that document. And I saw, you know, I saw so many things. There's a lot of stuff online about this that I didn't yes. know. But they had a news conference with him right after. It was running pretty well. Uh, that, you know, they were they were down there clearing the for rainforest. They did a lot. I mean, they really, they built this out of nothing. And it, they had to chop down a bunch of trees and burn them. Part of the um, their leasing agreement was that they had to clear the land. In mid-1977, was when people started showing up because when the story was about to break jim jones announced okay we're moving like right right before the story broke in new west so he had bought this land in 74 and and then the 77 when this is about to happen he's like okay now it's time to move right he didn't come out and say it to the people because i don't think they knew about the story that it was coming out he knew so it was running well with that small skeleton crew of people and then all these people showed up and their resources were were strained they had you know they'd been how did they get there they all flew you had to at the time you had to take a boat and then go through the jungle it wasn't easy to get to it took something like 26 hours it was hard to get a boat from san francisco no you had to take i'm sorry you had to fly to georgetown and which is the capital and then take a boat somehow and then go through the jungle. But at some point they did build build a landing strip. The landing strip, yes, was in Port Katuma. So it was running pretty well until mid-1977, but then when all these people started showing up, what was good for 50 people wasn't great for 1,000. No. So at this point when he got there, he named it. Well, didn't he say, hey, guys, I'm telling the temple to move, so you have to... You know, to the guys. He did, but they, but but it was sudden. They right. they were preparing for people to to gradually populate it, right. and all of a sudden they all were coming. There was shelter and stuff, but they were growing. They had like a big farm and stuff, and and there wasn't a lot of food. They had right. a lot of rice and like gravy and stuff. They didn't have a lot of meat and or or different right. vegetables. But people were still having fun before Jim Jones got there. Like, even though there was a lot of people and stuff, they were having a good time. They had a couple interviews with people that said it was great. They were having so much fun. And then when he showed up, it just... Well, what were they... How were they having fun? Well, they were working and stuff, but they were, you know, partying, enjoying each other. Well, they're probably having sex and stuff, because he discouraged sex except for him, because he said all men were homosexual except him. (laughs) So, they were... But they were having fun... Uh, then he showed up and the fun stopped. He brought armed guards with him. He took everyone's passports and they were not allowed to leave. So it got really cultish and dictatorous. Very quickly. Very quickly. He And he picked Guyana because the official language is English. There were probably some other reasons, too. And they didn't mind having him there because Jonestown was kind of on the border with Venezuela. And they were worried about uh, Venezuela 
invading them. So they figured if they had this big settlement of Americans there, they were pretty safe. Mm. Venezuela's not going to, like, try to invade with all these, Amer you know, America would take notice, put it that way, maybe. Uh, so he had been addicted to drugs for years, barbiturates and amphetamines. Ah. He, I think in a, another way he was like Elvis. He was against <laughs> drinking and, and illegal drugs, but apparently, you know, prescription drugs... He didn't see that as an issue. No. I don't know. But I didn't read anything about this, but I wonder if he had some kind of psychological condition, like either bipolar or something, that he was self-medicating because he was up all night sometimes preaching. Oh, that's another thing. When he got there, they had these loudspeakers all around, and it constant, constant that's, preaching. That's one of the 24 things 24-7. If he wasn't awake to do it then it was recordings of his voice all the time and talk about mind control that is mind control and driving people crazy. and and he his paranoia just kept getting worse i think the drugs made it worse so whatever he obviously whatever was going on in his head wasn't just normal shit no you know he there was something wrong with the guy and people were kept in line with punishing physical labor he broke families apart and made them inform on each other and keeping them awake all the time or half awake. They're in such a sleep-deprived mode that they're easy to control. He also used public humiliation and punishment if somebody went against him. He Sounds like Catholic school. Yes. Yeah, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so he would announce, I'm going to have people come and ask you if you want to escape with them or say that they want to escape. And this is a test. If you don't turn them in, then you will be in trouble. So whatever. So that keeps people from planning to escape. That's right. Wow. He was, so the utopia that he had preached about, maybe he even believed in, was, was not. It was anything but. There, Except for, for him, maybe. Maybe. I don't see how he could have been happy. There were armed guards. He censored mail. Phone calls were restricted, or he coached people what to say. People, relatives of people, they were allowed to call out to talk to their relatives, but their relatives said they could hear people coaching them in the background and, to say. And people have to remember, I don't want to, I know this is going to sound obvious, but there were no cell phones. No. There were, in 1977, when you wanted to talk, I'm sure and everybody no, didn't have private phones in their bungalow or whatever. There were probably weren't that many phones to use. No. And it, there was no, that's a good point, because there's no internet. He fed them false news reports. He told them that the government had set up concentration camps for black people and pol political dissidents. He told them the KKK was marching in the streets in the United States. He told them all sorts of shit. And I know it's easy to be skeptical, but if you're in this isolated place, you have no sleep, you're hungry. He's constantly preaching on the loudspeaker. I know. And um, the mail was censored, so it's not like you could write and say, hey, what's going no. on? You know, is this happening or is that? I know. And, uh, weren't, before they moved down there, and I'm remembering a book I read about it some time ago, weren't there like people dropping out and trying to get their family yes, members that to we'll drop get out? To that, yes. Okay. He's told people the armed guards were to protect them from the outside. But we know that they were not. They're to protect them. Here they were to keep them from escaping. Because people did try to escape. 
And when they did, they would be publicly humiliated, and he would scare people into staying. And there were there were punishments. There were, and he also had sex with a lot of the men to help connect them to him better. Or, or to mm. he claimed he wasn't gay, but all the men were. So apparently, that, and did the men believe they did. that? There was a couple discussions about him. He came up to one of the men and said. Hey, if you want me to, I'll fuck you in the ass. And the guy's like, uh, no thanks. And then another guy, they were talking, I was, this was on an interview on the PBS one. Another guy said that, like a bunch of guys said that they had had sex with him. Or he had had sex with them, I guess you could say. They probably went along with it because he was their, right. you know, they called him father and dad, you know. So, but even back in California, he had preached about mass suicide being an act of revolution. And he conducted loyalty tests in which he would give a group of people glasses of wine. And then after they drank them, he'd tell them that they had just drank poison. And then uh-huh. a while later, he'd tell them he was just testing them. To see uh-huh. if they were willing. He'd say, you. if you're not willing to die for the cause, then you, you don't believe although, in the cause. I, although somebody would have to explain to me more how mass suicide is revolution. Because, because if you all kill he yourselves. He explains it. And what he said was, we are showing the world... They have forced us to do this because, I mean, it's... it's so it would spark a revolution. Uh, like Charlie Manson yeah. with his Helter yeah. Skelter It never theory. works, though, does it? No, it doesn't. At Jonestown, he would conduct drills he called White Night. He would gather everyone in the pavilion and have all-night ranting and suicide drills. So they would have a drill. They had drills. Here, you're drinking this flavor aid. Um, oh, by the way, it's not poison. But it could have been. Could have been. He was doing all kinds of drugs and having all kinds of sex. So he said that, that I already talked about this. All men were gay except him. He also slept with a bunch of the women and fathered at least one kid with one of them. I'd be surprised if it weren't more. I'm sure it was more. Well, he, he kind of would say if it was. There was another child, John Victor Stone, who Jones claimed to have sired. The boy's mother, Grace, had left the temple in 1976 and was divorcing Tim, the, her husband. In 1977, she filed for divorce. She left when they were still in San Francisco. Jones had ordered Tim to take the boy to Guyana, which he did because Tim was still in the temple. Then Tim defected in 1977. I think he defected before Jim Jones got there. Maybe I don't. Maybe right after he got there. I don't know how he got away. The temple kept the boy, John. And so Jim Jones said, "No, he's my son. He, you can tell. Look at him. This was obviously pre-DNA. They couldn't do any testing on." Well, it wasn't pre-DNA, but it was pre-DNA. Well, 77. It was pre-DNA testing. Yeah. Well, that's what I meant. Right. The custody fight became the catalyst that led to the massacre because that's one of the reasons. Oh, that's interesting. So they were having this custody fight. The Stones were part of the group of defectors and relatives of members called Concerned Relatives Mm, who were trying to get people out. In April 1978, they distributed the, quote, accusation of human rights violations by Reverend James Warren Jones, end quote, to the press, members of the Congress, and to the People's Temple itself. There was this packet of affidavits and stuff that were talking about all the stuff he'd done. And then in June 1978, Deborah Layton escaped and provided an affidavit bolstering the claims of crimes and abuse. So some politicians have been defending Jones, though. Harvey Milk wrote to President Jimmy Carter oh, Harvey Milk. in February 1978 that Jones was, quote, a man of the highest character, end quote, and called the concerned relatives' claims 
bold-faced lies. Hmm. Mayor Moscone issued a press release saying Jones had broken no laws. But Congressman Leo Ryan of California decided he was going to find out what exactly was going on down there in South America. So Leo Ryan liked going on fact-finding missions. <laughs> Until he, his final fatal He had been, first he was an assemblyman in L.A. He lived with a black family in Watts in 1965. Well, and he worked family. He worked, yes. He worked as a substitute teacher for uh-huh. like a few weeks. So he could see what, what things was going were like on there. And then he also stayed at Folsom Prison as an inmate. Another time, he was in Newfoundland when he was a congressman, and he lay down between a baby seal and a hot tub <laughs> of the ice. So he had a long way from California. He loves to fact find. So a friend of his had a son who had quit the People's Temple. It, it, it said he died shortly after. It didn't say how he died, so maybe the kid committed suicide or something. The parents thought that his involvement in the People's Temple had something to do with his death. And then it, after this had happened, he heard about this affidavit, and so he decided he was going to go down there himself and find some facts. Mm-hmm. So he went to Jonestown with his aide, Jackie Spear, who is now a congresswoman, and NBC News people and several newspaper reporters and photographers. People had visited before, but they always gave notice. Leo Ryan did not give notice. He showed up in Georgetown and said, I want to go to Jonestown. The People's Temple had an office in Georgetown, which was quite a ways away from Jonestown. So he showed up there and was like, I want to go to Jonestown. And the people who were there were like, ooh. So they radioed because they were in contact with right. radio. And Jim Jones was in a tizzy about it. He didn't I know bet. what to do. He didn't want. He kept stalling them. They were there in Georgetown for a couple of days. And wasn't, and I'm remembering this from the book I read, Leo Ryan was getting more and more agitated about it. Yeah, he, he wanted was, he was to. Stuff. Apparently, not only did he stall the group, but while before he came, he kept having his white knight. Had a couple of things where he was ranting over the intercom at people. Those people must have been so sleep deprived. I know. And like one of the people that had escaped, she said that before when people visited, they had advance notice, so they only had to work half a day that day, and then they had they actually had like a good meal, so they were all in good moods and <laughs> So this time they weren't really, but. But Jones said, you better make it look good. Anyone asks you what you think about Jonestown, you know, like it, and it's a wonderful place, and no one better tell them anything different or something like that. Which to me is kind of interesting because if you really believe that you were giving people this utopian life, why would you have to... Well, why would you have armed guards no in, and not let people He's out? Weird. And Some of his inner circle, the women, were Jones's inner circle. I want to have an inner circle. I know. We have our cats. That's true. They convinced him that they had nothing to hide, so why don't we just let him come? You know? And he's like, okay, okay. Yeah, he's like, okay, okay. Well, NBC News has a lot of archival footage. It was like an hour. It didn't have any sound. It was just like footage. There was no sound? No, it was just like stuff that they didn't use on the news. and it didn't. Well, there was was like there was no narration. Yeah, there's no sound at all. There's no sound at all? No, it was, if you go look on YouTube, you'll see it. The very end, there's a part of the news with Jane Pauley giving something, but, but other than that, it looked like it was like stuff they had just filmed for background. It was just like people playing and kids and stuff like that. And it was sad when you think about it, because all those people are dead. And uh-huh. all those people were going to be dead in like 12 hours. Anyway, so Jim Jones was pretty freaking drugged out, apparently. He took lots of drugs because he was all worked up. But they had a party that night, uh, the Friday night, the 17th. They were dancing and they had like this band that played. I can't remember the name of it that sang them, but 
everyone was happy and dancing and partying. The next day, though, this guy, and he's in all the documentaries, but I'm sorry, I, guy, I didn't write down your name. He slipped a note to the NBC reporter, Don Harris, saying he wanted to get out and please help. And he signed his So they note. had the party while the reporters and stuff were there? Yeah. Okay. They had a, it was a welcome party for right. him. Okay. And that's when you see that there's a clip that I've seen a million times now with Leo Ryan saying, some people say this is, I've been talking to some people and they say this is the best thing that's ever happened to them in every oh, yeah, year. That. that was at that party. That was before everything went bad. Yeah. Very bad. It's funny too, it's almost like it's a, it's weird, it's this weird undercurrent. Everything is so happy. It's almost like it's a, a movie. You, as the viewer, know what's going to happen. It's chilling it's to chilling. know what's going to happen, yeah. that all those people you're watching partying are going to be dead. I know, it's horrible, especially the little kids, too. Then they, they Well, become... the huge, such a huge amount of the people, not that it's any more tragic for adult males to die, but such a huge amount of people at the People's Temple were women and children. And older people. There were a lot of old people. So the next day... This guy slipped a note to, he didn't, he says in his interview, the guy, who I can't remember his name, didn't know who was who. He didn't know who Don Harris was, but he saw him. So he slipped in this note that said he wanted to get out and please help, and he signed his name. And so Don Harris showed it to Ryan and Spears, Jackie Spears. So Don Harris, the reporter, confronted Jim Jones on camera. And Jim Jones is like, they lie, they lie. Like, it's really weird. Like, he's so, like, drugged out looking. And he said anyone was free to leave. And he acted like, you know, it's no big deal. If they want to leave, let them leave. They're liars and they don't want to be here. That's fine. They can leave. But then, like, apparently behind the scenes, he was freaking out. After yeah. that, he freaked out. He was shaken. shaken. Meanwhile, Spears and Ryan canvassed the crowd and found... 16 people who were willing to admit, yes, they did want to leave. So Ryan publicly announced anyone could go with him if they wanted to. A lot of people would not come forward. What, in that little six-seater plane? Well, let's see. Let's see what happened. So that afternoon... I mean, like the last days of Saigon. Yeah, I know, it is. That was part of the problem, that they didn't have enough planes. That afternoon, so many people wanted to leave that Ryan said he would wait for the next truck. Um, because they were like jammed onto this truck. Well, so they were trucking them to the airstrip, which was six miles away. So had people started leaving in trucks for the airstrip? Is that they had a truck on? ready to go. They were about to okay. leave. So while he's standing there waiting for the next truck, I guess they maybe they had one truck they had to bring people to come back. Some guy jumped up behind him with a knife and was grabbing him. Um, Ryan. Ryan, yes. And two temple members dragged the guy off him. Jim Jones was just like stood there. Uh. But of course he was drugged out. So, <laughs> uh. so you can see the aftermath on in a lot of the documentary footage where he's covered in blood, but he didn't get he Who's didn't he? Uh, Ryan Leo Ryan. He didn't get hurt at all. So I don't know what the blood's from unless he did get scratched. But he's like fuck this. I'm leaving now. He got on the truck that was leaving and left. He's like I'm not staying any longer. Obviously someone just tried to kill me. Even though these other people dragged him off, the guy that tried to kill him was... I seem to remember that Ryan and the TV people, and Ryan's entourage, at this point, got very... Yeah, they're like, uh, yeah. We're they leaving. freaked out. They did. Well, and I don't blame them. I'm not criticizing them, yeah, but no, they, they realized... They realized it was dangerous to be there, yes. Right. So there were too many people... When they got to the airstrip, there were too many people for that one plane, obviously. They had chartered a plane previously. They must have called or whatever. They must have done it online, you know, how you do Yeah. So they had to charter another plane from Georgetown. So they were waiting on the airstrip for that other plane, which probably wouldn't have taken too long, maybe half an hour. Right, but you have to wait for... 
the plane to get ready for the pilot, you know. So while they were waiting, a truck and trailer drove out of the um, jungle. jungle and started firing on them. Leo Ryan, Bob Brown, who was an NBC cameraman, Don Harris, the reporter from NBC, Greg Robinson, who is a San Francisco Chronicle photographer, and the defector, Patricia Parks, all were killed, were shot and killed. And didn't one of the cameramen, was it yes, the cameraman who died, yes. got the footage? Yes, right before he died, which yeah. is ch- kind of chilling. And 11 more were shot, but survived by playing dead. Jackie Spears said they shot her point blank after. They came up and shot her. I don't know how she survived, but she did. And one of the reporters from one of the newspapers, they went to the jungle to hide after the truck drove away. They they hid, and he came out and he took pictures. They're the pictures you see of the dead people around the plane. With their iPhones. They were all taking photos. (laughs) That's a joke, by the way. So the other plane was still sitting there with the people in it. But Larry Layton was in the plane and he was the um ex-husband of the woman that had defected the year before and gave the affidavit or not the year before but was so there were people sitting in the plane watching this happen yes there were and he pulled a gun and started shooting inside the plane but two of the other passengers disarmed him so he only wounded people he was the only person ever arrested for what happened that day in georgetown the people's temple members at the office georgetown not jonestown were ordered to commit suicide. Jim Jones called them and said, you have to commit suicide because we're all doing it. It's time. We're going to do it. <laughs> I would have said no. I know. Sorry. Well, his son said no. The only one who did it was this woman, Sharon Amos, who was a loyalist, and she was one of his inner Can you see those sitting around the office and are any of you guys going to do that? You're going to do that? I shouldn't joke about it. She but. slit her ch- three kids' throats and oh. she killed herself. See, that, that just... See, I, I think was one joking. of the kids was older. Too. I was joking around and then... Because one of them was a that I'm sorry. There. Back in Jonestown, the final white night was to begin. Jones called everyone to the pavilion. As before, in previous drills, the vats of flavor aid were set up. Now, before you go into that, let's go back to the airstrip for a minute. So there's a plane full of people mm-hmm. who... And then there were the Leo Ryan and the cameraman and the reporter yes. who were all shot. Did that plane full of people take off? and? I believe it did take off. And go somewhere? I believe they took off, went to Georgetown, and got the authorities. Okay. Because the other people were still there wounded, and they they made it to some, there was some discotheque right near the, near the, jungle. yes, discotheque, near the airstrip, where they got like, they had to use like vodka as a, try to clean their wounds or something. Wow. It was, it was hours before somebody came to help them, but then they were airlifted to, um, to George. What was the name of that documentary? There was an American Experience one. Oh, that's right. That one was pretty good, but I watched a couple of them, and I also read a lot. So this time... <laughs> a lot of Wikipedia. No, I, just no, I didn't. I didn't read exactly. I don't usually read that much. The Wikipedia. reason I'm asking is because people may want to watch it. Yes, the best one was the PBS American Experience on uh, Jonestown. There was another one that wasn't bad. It was short, but it was called Final Report, and I think it's maybe National Geographic, that had a good timeline. And I would not recommend the docudrama. There were three docudramas I watched that all had had the same people that were interviewed in the PBS one and the similar interviews at different times. No, um, but I'm talking about the movie with people acting. I didn't watch the movie, but no, I was going to say these three docudramas did, did interview people but they also had reenactments, which were all oh, horrible. Yeah. And how can you reenact They that? were so stupid. Don't even 
Oh, I hate reenactments oh, so much. Too. I can't even me stand too. it. I hate and I never, there is a movie that was made, I think, about 10 years ago. I have no desire to watch a movie. Yeah, and I don't see the point of a movie. No. There are plenty of documentary. I mean, just seeing, just listening to the actual audio and seeing video, there's lots of video of Jim Jones and there's lots of audio. And I think it's a lot more valuable to see him preaching right. than some stupid actor that totally doesn't get how he acted or spoke. And also, what happened there is so horrific. Ugh. I don't see the benefit of watching a dramatization of I hate it when dramatizations. When you can see the actual, what actual... I know. Happened. It's stupid. So anyways, Pack and Jonestown, they've had the vats of flavor, but this time they contain Valium to make people unconscious and um, cyanide to kill them. I think it was potassium cyanide. What if the cyanide worked before the valium? It did. did. Oh. Apparently it did. They started with the babies and the young children, and they had these plastic syringes. They squirt the the stuff into their mouth. That was one of the most awful. They held guns on their mothers. I think that one of the reasons was obviously the kids couldn't do it after the adults were dead. Or they would have had like a Lord of the Flies thing going on there. <laughs> it actually was kind of like an adult it was version like of an Lord adult of the Lord. Flies, wasn't the it? The other thing is obviously the, the kids couldn't do it after the adults were dead, but also once you yes. force people to kill their children, yes. they they're have a lot more malleable. For. That's yeah. true. They feel like that it's inevitable now, you know. And that that was, I mean, obviously that if you see your, I mean, instead of saying, here, send your children away and we'll all kill and ourselves. I, and I just want to point out, you may have been going to point this up, but I just want to point out, so when people say drink the Kool-Aid, this is what they're talking yes, about. Yes, it is. People putting syringes of poison into their babies' yes. mouths to kill them, and that's not a cliche you'll yes. ever hear me use. And I said there, because it's, and it isn't even the right context when people no. say it. And it wasn't Kool-Aid. So there were armed guards around, just in case someone got cold feet. And uh, and you know what? I'm assuming the armed guards ended up drinking it at the end because the only one... Sh- we'll get to that. But they did not autopsy all the victims. They took random, I think 50 maybe, random people. A lot of them did have gunshot wounds. So right. I think a lot of people either freaked out. I think people they might have freaked out and ran. They probably, yeah. Or someone that just was like, no, I'm not going to drink it. So they shot them. There are recordings of the proceedings of the suicide. And I think it's like kind of like a suicide note. First of all, he's telling people to die with dignity. This is the way communists die. Don't cry. Don't get hysterical. Mm. He's saying that because of the airstrip shooting, the U.S. Army is going to parachute down. They're going to torture our babies and children. So this is a better way for them to go. You're going to all be together when you die. Blah, blah, You know blah. what it reminds me of on a huge scale is the man who kills his... Yeah, well, he did think wife. of all these people as his children. You know, I'm not because, because if he can't have them, nobody else can. He said that everybody was... Well, that's the thing. He was kind of like that on a huge scale because, first of all, he made everyone call him father or dad, and he considered everyone his children. He considered it a betrayal if somebody wanted to leave. Mm. He did not want people to leave him. I seem to remember from the documentaries and stuff... Well, all this was going on, you could hear people crying and babies yes. crying and stuff. His voice just kind of droning on. Yes, he very he kept talking and preaching. Yes. Yeah. Ugh. And then that wouldn't be enough to kill make you don't want to kill you. Just to stop listening to him for uh, once after months of his voice in your stop. ears. Some people did escape. There was one guy I saw that said, I just slipped out and nobody stopped me. But by then it was chaotic. So some people were able to, but most of them weren't. So the final total at Jonestown was 909. 
four in Georgetown, the woman with her three kids, and five on the airstrip. So it was, what, was that 918? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So during the Jonestown stuff, Stephen, Tim, and Jim Jr. drove to the U.S. Embassy for help, but the Guyanese guards turned them away because they had heard of the shootings at the airstrip, which is kind of weird. Why didn't they arrest them? Well, I guess there isn't. They couldn't be arrested. They didn't have anything to do with it, but they were like, we're not helping Since you. Since they're American citizens, didn't they have to be let into the embassy? Uh, I and that's a good point. But the Guyanese guards were like, no. So um, I don't know. Maybe they started guarding the embassy after the shootings. I don't know. Possible. It, it was very unclear. So they went back to the Georgetown office and found Sharon Amos and her kids dead. I don't know if they called the police, but the police showed up and they put the boys under house arrest and interrogated them for five days because oh they thought God. they had killed Sharon Amos. And Stephen actually was... You'd think after a few days they would have gotten wind of what had gone on. They did, but they still thought... Maybe they thought Stephen, because they were his sons. Right, yeah. But Steve was in prison for three months after being accused of the deaths. But Jim Jr. was sent back to... And Tim, I think... Or somebody that was something, it wasn't Jim Jr., I don't know what happened to him, but Tim, who was another adopted son, and some other guy that was on the team were sent back to Jonestown to identify bodies. Why? Oh. I don't know. There's so many people. On November 19th, Sunday, Guyanese soldiers arrived in Jonestown. There was one survivor, Hyacinth Thrash, 76. She had been with the People's Temple since the Indianapolis days, so she had been there. So there was one person they found alive. One person alive. She had hid under her bed when she heard about the airstrip shootings and then fell asleep (laughs) and missed the meeting. (laughs) Yeah, I guess if you're deaf. But there were other survivors who took off. Yes, but she's the only one that was still there. She later recalled, I love her quote, When I got outside, it was like a ghost town. I didn't see or hear anybody. I said, oh, God, they came and they killed them all, and I was the onlyest one alive. Why didn't they take me, too? Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the end of my Jonestown. So, well, wow. there's probably some discussion we can have. But well, there's a lot of fallout. Well, there was one report I saw that I didn't mention much because I thought it was stupid. It was with Bill Curtis about the CIA involvement. And this Jim Jones, according to this report, had some kind of involvement with the CIA. And Jonestown was some kind of CIA test. Oh, what a load of crap. And one of the proof was there was a guy with the embassy or something that was also a CIA guy and he was there on the airstrip but funny how he didn't get shot blah 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 and I'm like well he didn't get shot maybe because how would the guys in the truck know not to shoot him I just found it very one of the things implausible one of the things that always strikes me about that is so many people die they were all Americans and people for the most part know what Jonestown is like our generation yeah and older generations but it's not something that's considered this big i know the biggest non-war loss of american lives in modern history definitely the biggest mass murder suicide in american history but modern history but until 9-11 you know you think of pearl harbor but that was at war that was a they weren't civilians even the people that willingly took the poison it was very depressing listening to that tape and thinking about those little kids, 
I mean, oh, I just can't even. I remember at the time in and those pictures of people laying there on their kid, little kids' I remember legs that out from Newsweek. The yes, photos Newsweek, Newsweek. The photos and just bodies and bodies and bodies. And it's like, oh my God, I just don't even. It's amazing that somebody can have that much influence over people. I was always taken by how the people who joined who joined the People's Temple, for the most part, were people looking for something. And they were poor people and yeah. people on the margins and people who needed help. And he promised that. And it got so twisted. Yes. And maybe that's how a lot of cults start. I don't know. But uh, and I, I think I he think, took advantage of people's vulnerability and it became so opposite of what... I know. I know. And he knew. That's the thing. It's not like he was unaware that it was... Tw- Well, part of being a narcissist is rationalizing your own twistedness. That it's okay if you do this thing. It's okay if you're like this. It's not okay if anybody else is because you're the ends. Your ends are so important. Like I said, the ends justify the means. For instance, here's a total hypothetical situation. It's okay if you're a total liar and accuse somebody who's not lying of lying. So that your followers will believe you. Or, or well, we've total. seen a lot of... One thing that works really well is accusing somebody of the same stuff you're doing. Even and, if the person you're accusing isn't doing it. Yes. It and could win elections. He <laughs> but he, I mean, he did that all the time. He was accusing, right. he was accusing the government of stuff that he was doing. And I, I just feel like people who are vulnerable uh, physically, when you beat them down physically, you're tired... Like you said, lack of sleep. It's like battered woman syndrome. It's true, though. It's And that's what you do when you torture someone. They're brainwashing. They keep them awake for right. hours. You don't give them food. You get them so they're dependent on you. But it's similar to false confessions. It's true. Where you have somebody who's just gone through the shock of somebody they care about or know being murdered mm-hmm. in a and lot I just of cases. Saw another one the other and day. you drag them in. Right. And then for, for a dozen hours or 15 hours, with with little food or water, you just batter them, batter them, and they will do anything to get out of their yes. room, including telling you what you want to hear, or and you lie to them and manipulate them. Yeah, that's my oh, story. Jones. So I hope you young people, when you when you think of that phrase, drink the Kool Aid now, know what it means, and, and that saying it isn't really the right usage of it because people use it what, as a way to say you're you're buying, you're into, buying into, you're believing. It's something. used a lot in sports. You're you're believing you know, in something. Like you know, you're buying all yeah, you're going all whole hog into something, buying into buying into right, something. Right. Which, like somebody's coaching philosophy, like Bill Belichick's coaching philosophy. You know, they all drank the Kool Aid and you whatever. know, the Patriots or whatever. It's like saying, Why don't you go jump in the gas oven or something? Right. It's it's ridiculous. Gas, whatever. It's, you know. Yeah, so every time you guys use the cliche drink the Kool Aid, I want you to visually picture Somebody with their baby sitting on their lap, and they're using a like a plastic baster, a plastic baster of cyanide, putting it in their baby's mouth. And the thing is, like, oh, and killing their child. The Valium did not work quickly enough. No, it wasn't. The cyanide works within like a minute or two. It's horrific. People watch them. They're watching people die. Yes. Well, it's kind of you have to have the Valium like hours before. I know. And then you wouldn't be taking the cyanide. So, well, that was a very interesting Thank topic. You. And I did a lot of research, and it was depressing. But you know what we need to do now? Our next one, well, not our next one, but the next one of the ones we need to do is to the postal one. I yes, think. we do. Because going I think, postal. I think we should. 
Yeah, because I couldn't remember a lot of those. I don't mm-hmm. know if I want to. I think to. that guy's name was something like John Patrick Hurley. But there were several. Or something. I mean, that's why it became a thing. We should do that. There were a lot of, there was a lot of weird stuff going on in the late 70s, early 80s. Oh, yeah. That we should revisit. Oh, yeah. But you know what it's time for now? Is Ask a Lawyer. Matt's been waiting. We're here with Matt Nichols from Nichols and Churchill, Portland, Maine. Hi. Hi. Thank <laughs> you for having me here once again. Okay, the question today is, how exactly does attorney-client privilege work? When does it kick in, and are there things that it doesn't apply to? Well, attorney-client privilege kicks in, well, as you might guess, when the attorney-client relationship is formed, and that's usually when the client says he decides to hire you. It gives you money. Um, well, different, pe- <laughs> oh. d- different people handle that in, in different ways. But there's, I'm going to defer to my um, ethics <laughs> attorneys, this fine line between attorney-client privilege and secrets. If a person calls me for a consultation and says, I have some questions, here's what's going on, blah, 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 there is not an attorney-client relationship formed at that juncture. However, those are still secrets that I'm not allowed to go blabbing to anyone, including the police. For example, if it were the person was calling me about a criminal case and gave me some incriminating information, and I were to go to the police and give them that information, and then we went to trial in the case, and they called me as a witness, that person would have grounds to object to my testimony. It's not my privilege, it's the client's privilege. That's the key. It is not the attorney's privilege. It is the client's privilege. Could you get disbarred if you did that? Certainly. Well, you know, we have various ranges of discipline. Disbarment so is is sort of like the the, the, de- the death penalty yeah. for your, your license, right? Okay. Now, attorney-client privilege, once that attorney-client relationship is established, and that can differ from situation to situation depending on the facts of the case, but once that attorney-client privilege is established, anything the client tells me is uh, is privileged. I cannot go blab it to somebody else. If I do, I'm going to get in big trouble with the board of bar overseers. Perhaps more importantly, if I were ever called as a witness to testify against that client, the client, as I said, has the privilege. The client would have his or her new attorney object and, and the evidence would not be allowed. It extends to office staff, secretaries, paralegals, trial assistants. If I hire a private investigator, even though that investigator obviously does not work for my law firm, that investigator's got a separate business, but we use them all the time, that investigator is also bound by or cloaked by attorney-client privilege and cannot be called as a witness against the client. There are exceptions to all privileges. Clients can waive the privilege. That is in a post-conviction proceeding. Let's say that a person gets convicted of murder. Later brings a direct appeal saying there were errors in the rules of evidence and all this kind of stuff, and that's denied. Now the person brings what we call a post-conviction review, or as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, (laughs) a writ of habeas corpus in federal court, and says, I was denied my right to effective assistance counsel. That's the most common post-conviction review we have, 
my lawyer screwed up. And client gets on the stand in that proceeding and says, here's what my lawyer did. He did this, that, and the other thing. I told him this, he wouldn't do this, he wouldn't do that. Client has now waived that privilege. So the state now is going to call me as a witness to say, did you tell the client that if he testified in the case, you would boil his bunny rabbit? Mm. <laughs> no, no, I didn't tell him that. What did you tell him about his bunny rabbit? I told him he had a very nice bunny <laughs> rabbit. I, I wish I had one of my own. And in fact, isn't the reason you didn't put your client on the stand because your client told you he did it? Yes. He told me he did it. So the clients, you know, it's not a one-way street, it's two-way street. Although it's client's privilege, the client can waive so it implicit, once, implicitly or explicitly. When the client waives the privilege, so for instance, if you're up there testifying, is everything on the tape, like whatever you want to say? Uh, no, I think it's got to be, it's got to be always, testimony always has to be relevant okay. to the proceedings. Right. So I can't say, well, I've represented this guy for 15 years and I got him off on all these other crimes and you know what? He did them all. He did them all. He told me he did them all. I can't, although, yeah, you'd have double jeopardy issues. You know, I can't, uh, I can't go but off I'm on a tangent. That would be a little saying, vindictive I don't want to come up with all sorts of weird hypotheticals. <laughs> but let's say this trial was related to one murder, but the client said, well, you know, this one I'm being tried for is just like the one I did a few years ago up in up in um, Franklin County or whatever, and so and they never found her body. <laughs> and you're like, shut up, shut up. If the privilege were waived, would you then feel free to go to the police or something and say, hey, he told me about this other thing, or right. is that still... No, I don't. that's not even a tough call for the attorney. The tough calls for attorneys, the toughest call for an attorney is you've prepped your client for the trial. Every good attorney should prep their client just in case he or she wants to testify, because that's... It's the client's decision, not the attorney's decision. So you always need to prep them. Unfortunately, 90% of defense attorneys don't do it. Mm. Oh, okay. So you know the client's testimony, what he's told you. Now you're getting into the trial, and the client intimates to you that he's going to change his story. Not because, oh yeah, now I remember that happened. Just, I'm screwed here. I need to change something. Now you got a problem. And that, unfortunately, we could talk mm -hmm. for the next three hours about. Right. But I, unfortunately, have been in that situation once in 28 years. And that is a very, very, very delicate situation. Because you're still trying to make sure that the defendant ultimately gets a fair trial in the case. Then we also have the rules where... What do you do when your client tells you a bunch of stuff, gets on the witness stand, and now makes up what is not just a different version or a little fudging, but is completely <laughs> saying ABC when they told you XYZ, what do you do? And you do have an obligation. You have an obligation to make it known to the court, but you have an obligation to protect the client, attorney-client privilege, and you're really uh, walking a tightrope there. It's something I don't have nearly enough time to go into now, and I don't want to mislead any clients or attorneys about what exactly it all entails. But right. those are the difficult wow. cases. Yeah. Well, that's why you go to college for so long <laughs> and, and take all those tests. Right? Not, not really. They don't teach it. They don't teach you. 
that started to uh, to teach that in college. Yeah. And I used to work in a law office, and the, the new attorneys that would come in, they learned a lot of theory and stuff, they right. said, but not any real-life stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. Thank, thank you. And you've actually opened up questions, you know, out there. Folks Anybody keep sending them in. Questions. Keep, keep sending, sending them in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for having me, ladies. Thanks, so for our recommendations, because we've been talking a lot about 48 Hours and Dateline, yeah. two shows that we watch all the time. One app I have that I pay for to watch things is the 48 Hours Mystery yeah. app, which I've had for a couple of years. It's $4.99 a year, I think. Yeah, that's what I have. I don't know if it's worth it because it seems like I've seen it all before. Well, I just want to say 48 Hours Mystery is getting on my nerves. <laughs> and I'll say I'll give you the reasons why. All right. The quality of its storytelling has deteriorated. Yes. It's got some new reporters, if you want to call them that, who I don't like as much. Is correspondents. Correspondents, whatever they call themselves. They're a little more sensationalistic. They do a lot more of the breakaway, where they're when they're interviewing somebody of breaking back to them, where they're looking concerned or frowning, which I hate. I feel like. I find the repetitiveness irritating before and after commercials. I find the the Twitter tease where, like, you're five minutes into the show, do you believe Joe's story? And it's like, well, I really haven't heard about about it. Do you think he's innocent or guilty? And I know they're just trying to engage people on Twitter, but they should ask better questions instead of... And no matter how you feel about the death penalty, I feel like lots of times they're really banging the drum for the death penalty, Mm -hmm. and they go for a lot of low-hanging... As far as emotional reactions, yes. and I get really irritated when they run one that they've had before, and they say, "But with a twist, or with a, you know, with new evidence, or a new twist," and you watch the entire thing, and then the last two minutes is some stupid thing. I get tired of seeing. Aren't there enough murders in America? I also, well, it's the same ones too. Right. It's like well, Dateline and Forty Eight Hours do a lot of them. Yes, they do. The but same I like Dateline. I get very First confused. of all, one thing I like about Dateline is sometimes it goes longer than the hour format, so it's yes. so it goes more in depth. I feel like it covers more ground even when it's only an hour. They don't do a lot of that repetitive yeah. before and after commercial stuff. Although one thing that they both do that I freaking hate is the clickbait type of headline thing and it totally changed the direction or they even it changed everything or something happened you mean before commercial break yes and it's so <laughs> stupid it's like just tell me what friggin happened i'm no, watching that's it that's part of that. tv to uh, get you i know to but it's just can they think commercial? of a better like i know more original way of doing it but i like i also on dateline even though Keith Morrison has I like that Keith Morrison cynical though. kind of uh, I know that way. Yeah. You know, it sounds like he's being like sarcastic I know. or he's making fun but of But even person. so I find him and Josh Mankiewicz and Josh Mankiewicz always looks like he like doesn't believe what people are saying. And like Richard a, what's the name, the guy with the glasses? Flushinger. Yes. I find them more And the woman with the blonde hair, what's her name? The short blonde hair, she's an older woman, and then there's another one. Well, I find them more professional yes. in and a lot Lester of ways. Holt. I and, love Lester. Yes. He always has that little half smile on his face, even he's when he's handsome. Like, so I find them more credible and less sensationalistic than yes, they are. Hours. Although I haven't seen Dateline as much because I don't watch things on T V as much I watch I it on my app. Is there a Dateline app? No, I have the NBC News app and I, I watch guess I can watch it on there, Dateline. but NBC's app is giving me crap. It's making me See, it doesn't make me do that. It's trying to make me 
register my server or something. I don't it's know. It's also made me do that. That's what the ABC one used to do, too. Yeah, I, I gave up on the ABC one. So I, I am more of a Dateline fan I like Dateline better. than a 48 hours. I like 2020 sometimes, too, but I only watch it when it's like on TV or sometimes on YouTube. The thing I don't like about 2020 is it doesn't do just one story. No, they so don't. So you have to sit through the whole show. And they have that guy that, even though I'm sure he's a really good reporter, he looks like a soap opera actor to me. John something or whatever. I don't and, know. you know, kind of one of the out, an outlier, when it does true crime, does it really, really well, is Frontline. Oh, yeah, Frontline, yeah. They do really good in-depth stories. They always do, but when they do it, the occasional true crime one, like the one a few years ago where a bunch of Navy guys, speaking of false confessions, confessed to a murder they didn't commit then there was mm, one about that. an arson murder in texas a guy oh who yeah supposedly, I saw that one's good. and and it's and it went into how the science of fire investigation has changed and a lot of things yes. that people were convicted of are no longer true mm-hmm. so i always love it when frontline yeah, has frontline a true crime aspect the ones the kind of true crime shows i hate the most and we've discussed this on previous shows are the ones where they do reenactments. Oh, I hate reenactments. And <clears throat> except for like the really cheesy ones, like on Unsolved Mysteries, or, or like America's How do you Most get Wanted. someone who's been through a tragedy like that? The ones where people who well, are actually involved oh, yeah. in are in Those the are bad. Yeah, it's like whoa. But the ones with the actors are bad too. Yes. Yeah. Can you be like that's on your resume? <laughs> yes, I was. I played Jim Jones in this <laughs> right. drama. And you did a horrible job. So I would say True Crime News shows Dateline top recommendation. Yeah, Dateline, I guess. When it redoes. Well, I don't understand. Think of them all. Like, how many, like, they How many re- times do they, sh- like that Cal Harris guy in upstate New York, they had one the other night and I haven't watched it because I'm so tired of him, so I don't know. I think he's guilty. The one whose wife, quote unquote, disappeared and died, and it was 9-11 or the day after, so nobody was really paying oh, attention. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a rich guy in some upstate New York town. There was a woman in New York City that disappeared, too. Mm. Um, she was a doctor, um, Indian. But anyway, Dateline anyway, has done Cal Harris like half a dozen times. Yeah. And it's like, just tell the story. I know they want to update it, but... But yeah, I keep seeing the same things. I'm like, oh, because we'll show a different picture. And then you or, click on it. It's like, right. I've seen this I can always before. tell from... And how about so many people But one thing with that Cal Harris thing is that early on shows had stuff that later ones don't. Had stuff that convinced me, hey, something's going on here. That like happened the morning his wife disappeared and I can't remember at all. And then a later show, they'll leave that out and I'm like... Why are they leaving that out? I want to see new stuff. I want to see new ones. I there know, are enough murders in America. People killing each other all the time. In interesting and ways. But, interesting enough. But ways. you know what? And I know there's, those shows are supposedly expensive to produce. And I know they are in some ways expensive being a relative thing. They're not expensive the way shows where you pay actors to act and new shit. stuff are. So, come on, guys. But also, like, almost every show is someone killing their husband or wife or girlfriend. I mean, pretty much, usually it's spouses killing each other. It's like, well, it's anything else. When they do it well of who really did this. Yeah, that's true. Although most of the times I think it's the, the ones, and usually it is. But the ones where, you know, something just, just really obvious. It's yeah. like, wants to watch that. I know, that's true. Anyway, so that's our... So that's our show recommendation for today. So, iTunes. Rate, rate, review, review us. 
subscribe. Subscribe. Please. And you can find us on our website, Crime and yeah, Stuff. Yeah, you, you can listen on our website, Crime, Crime and, and Stuff, stuff online. online. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook, Crime and Stuff. Yes, with the ampersand. And same with the iTunes as ampersand. You can find information about my mystery novels at MaureenMilliken.com. That's right, MaureenMilliken.com. And follow me on Twitter at Milliken 47 Yeah. And... And so, until next week, I think that's crime and stuff, right? Yes. Bye-bye. I... Why can't I think of the fucking word I want? It's... Uh, Wait. Well, pause it for a minute. I'll look it up. I hate pausing it. Why don't we just talk and I can... Okay. I can... La, 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 la